Hello, everyone, and welcome to uh, the third and uh, most likely final edition of the Gilead Gleanings pod slash video cast. Uh, I don't know. There's, I'm sure there's terminology. I don't really know what it is. I can barely be bothered to learn the terminology that I actually know. So um, my, this is a, a series of discussions from First Presbyterian Church in Hastings, Nebraska. My name is Damon Heitman. I serve as the associate minister there currently. And we have invited our congregation to read uh, this book, Gilead, a novel by Marilyn Robinson. And over the course of the summer, and we have just been inviting people to join in discussions about it. And so we are going to continue that discussion today. I am joined by a collection of folks who I will invite to introduce themselves now. Uh, Anne, would you like to begin? That'd be fine. Um, I'm Anne Fairbanks Bolke, and I'm a longtime member of First Presbyterian Church, and I'm also a retired English professor from Hastings College. Very nice. Thank you. Jenny, you're next. Jenny Welsh. I am a newish member of the Presbyterian Church, <laughs> Congregationalist before that, Methodist before that, um, and I am an English instructor. I have taught at CCC and online through Bellevue University. And Constance. Hi, I'm Constance Malloy. Um, I think I've been a member of First Presbyterian for 27 years. Um, I am a retired English professor at Hastings College, like Anne, and I will be teaching a course at CCC this fall, so I will reach out to you for help a lot. <laughs> and so, yeah, as I mentioned a little bit ago, this is our, our third of these, these discussions. Um, if you are it's just starting maybe to read Gilead and you want to sort of go back and, and listen to them or watch them, you certainly can. They're available. Um, the church uh, has a SoundCloud thing and the church has a YouTube channel as well. They're up there and available for folks. So, so we are going to talk about um, probably the not maybe in particular kind of the last third of the novel, maybe the novel as a whole also because we are we are at the end uh, i'm assuming we've all made it to the end of the book i see oh, some nods yes. okay yeah. good yeah. i i just made it there this morning so i came in just under the wire as usual <laughs> um so i mean, will try not to spoil any sort of kind of major plot points um but we'll also feel relatively free to talk about characters uh, in detail as well. So uh, if we spoil anything for anybody, eh, such as life, I Sorry. guess, <laughs> you'll be fine. It's not a, it's not a big just, deal. We're in life. Maybe we'll just say spoiler alert right now. Like we have finished the book. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, full, full disclosure. We've all finished the book and we want to talk about it. So, um, I don't have anywhere in particular in mind to start uh, for this conversation, so I'll just I'll just step out of the way. You know, one thing that 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 I, that I wanted wanted to mention at some point, and it might be nice for me to get this out of the way on the podcast. But one of the things that I really enjoyed about this novel, with my background, is his portrait of um, falling in love 
as an older person and having this taken completely by surprise. Um, this happened to me when I was 70, when, when, I met, when I met John, you know, b before we got married. And the descriptions there, I mean, they're just wonderful. Um, like on page 206, there's a, a paragraph in the middle of the page. The next Sunday, she was there again. I was miserable with relief, afraid I might laugh for no reason, afraid I might look at her too long, trying to remind myself she was a stranger though she had been in my, in my dearest and most inward thoughts for weeks and that I must not startle her with some uncountable fam familiarity. I had been to the barber and I was wearing a new shirt since it seemed only prudent to suppose that my constant, passionate, and most unworthy prayers might be answered. And I'd made a little experiment with hair tonic. Botten had met me in the road as he often did those days and he looked at me and chuckled. And I thought, what an utter and transparent fool I am. Um, and then um, over at the top of page um, 208, there's sort of more of this. And he says, and I, and, and I, and I was 67, you know, when I was doing this stuff. And, and the reason I say that this is so true to life, um, when John and I had just started seeing each other, um, one of the things that I had told my daughter who lives in town was, you know, call me any afternoon and if you need for me to pick up one of the kids at school and I'm happy to do that. And so Liz called me one afternoon. It was a really cold, it was a really cold day. This kind of matters. And she said, you know, can you pick up Connor at 3.30? It's like 3.15. And I said, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I can't, I, I've got a date. And she said, well, what time's your date? And I said, six. And she said, six, it takes you two and a half hours to get ready for a date. And I said, well, yeah, you know, I, I'm out of practice. You know, I've <laughs> got to be sure to get this right. And then another time, she called me at the last minute and I said, no, I'm sorry, I can't. My nails are wet. And again, cold day and I would have needed gloves. And of course, I would have messed up my nail polish again for my date. And there were, I mean, there were just all kinds of things like that, you know, hunting through my clothes to see, you know, if there was anything presentable and, and oh, all that kind of stuff. So um, he, so our, our author is right on target with, with the way, with the way he, he, he portrayed, with the way she um, portrays that. I thought that was really well done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love the way that he's, it seems he's kind of trying to hide, he's kind of trying to hide his emotions or his feelings, uh, especially from the congregation, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but if he's, if, he's, if he's never used hair tonic before, and all of a sudden he's got <laughs> hair tonic in, and he's never yeah. had a new shirt before, and all of a sudden he's got a new shirt, um, they, they all would have known those are... Those are those are things people notice <laughs> of the preacher. You have some experience with that, Damon. <laughs> well, I mean, you just you're just up there, yeah. you know. And and folks notice you part your hair the other way. Folks, <clears throat> folks notice that sort of stuff. Um, just if if for no other reason than just out of familiarity. Mm -hmm. but, <laughs> So, Anne, one of the lines that you read, or maybe you mentioned a couple of them, 
um, that I might laugh for no reason. Um, good, like we talked, I talked last time about how I noticed that mentions of laughter. And, <laughs> you know, I noticed quite a bit of that again here at the end of the novel, but that's one of the times, one of the few very rare times when, he, when our narrator is actually talking about laughter in a happy sense, right? It's, but it's still not even like totally happy. It's like a, I'm so nervous or I'm trying to withstrain <laughs> or withhold myself in this situation. Um, but um, so that was on page 206, like you said. And then on 207, it says, at that point, I begin, began to suspect, as I have from time to time, that grace has a grand laughter in it, which struck me as such a beautiful line in the book and such an interesting I don't know, just an interesting way to look at Grace. And because again, I see so much of his laughter as he's talking about Jack and his irritation with Jack, which we can definitely talk about some more. But this is one of those um, almost happy, almost happy references to laughter and the role that it played in his life, even though he still does seem to focus much more on the sorrow and the weeping. Yeah, interesting. And um, now that you mentioned that, Jenny, it makes me think that, um, Jack laughs a lot mm -hmm. when, when he's having conversations, especially with the narrator. The narrator will say something and Jack will laugh and then respond in, in some way. And I'm never quite sure what, that, what his laughter is, is about there. Yeah. Well, and in some ways it matches his father because... Again, I'm still saying it Boston in my head. Sorry, I know that's different. Everyone has their own way of saying that name. But um, dear old Boston, Boughton, Boughton, uh, the best friend, he, he chuckles and he, you know, they sort of rib each other a little bit and there's that playfulness with them. But with Jack's laughter, it really seems to be, I don't, I don't really know what the right word is, if it's sarcastic or... It seems very irritating to our narrator. I mean, he's just constantly annoyed, basically, with Jack and and his. At one point, it's described as devilment. Where where is that? Um, I don't know. Page page one eighty one. I have written down. Jack's. Let me get there. That boy was always done, always grinning, always intent on some piece of devilment. And so, you know, he just, from, from the very beginning, through all the ages and stages of watching Jack grow, has not been pleased by him, is my take. Yeah, that seems pretty accurate <laughs> to me. Yeah. I sort of get the sense that, that Jack's laughter is sometimes that sense that um, Jack feels that he's aware of a joke that no one else is aware of. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, and also, it, and it's a joke at other people's expense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so too. There are also a couple places in the novel where um, the narrator says something and Jack goes white, but he's grinning while he goes white. Mm -hmm. It's usually some allusion <clears throat> to his first common-law wife and child, um, the child that died. Um, 
So that seems to be something that Jack can't quite forget about or forgive himself for. But he seems so, like he, he, he'd love to be forgiven. He'd love to be saved. He has that experience of standing next to the man at the tent meeting who falls down on the ground and stands up and is saved. And he, he wishes somehow he could receive that. And then he also asks the narrator about predestination. Is there any way he can redeem himself? Yeah, and it, it strikes me also, Constant, that in so Jack and the narrator have sort of one sort of last sort of big honest conversation, mm-hmm. and Jack uh, reveals what what he's gotten himself into in St. Louis, and he's gotten another woman pregnant, um, and has a has a another common law wife. They're married in the eyes of God. He says, um, in part because they can't be married in the eyes of the land, and has a son. And in that conversation, he seems very honest about about himself. And because he talks about having a, a conversation with um, this woman whose name Della is that right? Della um, with her father, and her father's has a very low opinion of him. And Jack says he's he's right to have that mm-hmm. opinion of me. Um, I don't really know, <laughs> but like there seems to be something about Jack that acknowledges all of the mischief that he was up to as a child, the stealing of things from the narrator's house um, and, and all of those sorts of things. but um, can't quite bring himself about to actually ask forgiveness for those things or something to that effect. You know, I'm, I'll go ahead. I mean, I'm, you know, thank you. I'm kind of wondering though, I don't see him as far along on the path to um, seeing that he's been wrong and asking forgiveness, I think as, as you guys do. I mean, like on page 226 where he was at the tent meeting, um, and he's, you know, he says he wishes this could have happened, but then at the bottom of that paragraph, and there he was weeping with repentance and relief while I stood watching him with my hands in my pockets, feeling nothing but anxiety and shame and a certain amusement, if you will forgive me, you know, but, but then, but then when he goes on, but the next day, my father's letter came and I got a decent coat and a bus ticket and I was all right then. There's, I mean, there's, to me, there's just something about him that he doesn't really see what his own ethical situation is. I mean, he just can't, smart as he is and all that sort of thing, and he, he just can't see himself yet. And, and may, maybe I'm, I'm not seeing him accurately, or maybe I'm being too, I'm being too judgmental, that sure could be. Well, I get the sense that the narrator shares that, that, that sense of what are you doing to your family? You know, he talks those those short stories he shares about when Jack was young and all the trouble he got into, all the trouble he instigated. And not even the trouble he got into, more so the trouble he stirred up and and got away with. And there's a line that says, his family was so well-respected that he got away with it all. That is to say, he was allowed to go right on disgracing his family. 
And, you know, I don't really know how that changes as he gets older because he's still, there's the experience with the first young woman and child, right? And then he leaves and then there's, now there's this, this new family and new relationship and he comes back, but he's, he's still leaving at the worst possible time. And so he continues to just run out on his family. And I think that, I think that's really painful for our narrator, John Ames, to witness for many reasons. Yeah, I think, I think, I think that that's accurate, Jenny. I would say that. Well, and especially give the, um, so the, the narrator describes how he ended up in the pulpit of the church and talks about a conversation that he had with his own father. Um, his, so his brother, Edward, Edwards, one of those two, <laughs> uh, goes off to the Gulf Coast, I think, uh, builds a house and then also builds a house intentionally for their parents. Uh, and the and the narrator's father and mother go down. The idea is they're just going to go down there for a year, and then they'll come back, and then they'll just go down there when the weather's bad in Iowa. But they go down and they never come back. Uh, and and then the narrator has a conversation with his father, and his father's really kind of saying to him like, "You don't you don't have to stay in Gilead, and you don't have to take over the church." Um, and the narrator makes a very intentional decision to stay there. And two, live up to what he seems to be a responsibility to the family or to the place. Um, and, and, and his namesake doesn't do those things. There's a real split from grandfather Ames and his own son. In other words, the father of the narrator. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the novel is is riddled with this sense of what do i owe my legacy um got some notes i took um on page 82 where he's he's really struggling with this i believe i was implicated and am and would have been if i had never seen that pistol it has been my experience that guilt can burst through the smallest breach and cover the landscape and it abides and abide in it in pools and dankness, just as native as water. I believe my father was trying to cover up for King, more or less. <clears throat> the things that happened in Kansas lay behind it all, as I knew at the time. Um, So he's, he's very confused about the legacy of his grandfather, it seems to me. And as readers, I, or as a reader, I tend to side with the narrator and with his father on the side of peace. <laughs> and yet, there, I mentioned in my email to you guys that there's this undercurrent of... Um, I mean, John Brown is really behind this story and the whole story of, you know, the Civil War and, um, but then it seems to have been dropped, that whole responsibility for abolishing slavery or looking to the rights of black people 
has been dropped so that, and I think that comes full circle when Jack comes home and would like to bring his wife and child. And he remembers that there had been a Negro church in Gilead. Um, and the narrator says, well, it was burned. Um, and then, or no, Jack says it was burned. And the narrator kind of tries to make light of that. Oh, it was just a little fire. Yeah, he said, just, just a nuisance fire. And right. I've been thinking, of, I've, I'm having trouble with, with what to make of that. Yeah, he really is trying to belittle. And, and he also apparently doesn't do anything to help to restore the church. Right. You know, or anything like that. And this is a novel. Everybody's running around helping everybody all the time. And, and so why isn't that happening in that situation? I mean, yeah. once you sort of brought that up, I thought, yeah, that's that's odd too. Okay, and this was yeah. the church that the grandfather would go to rather than hearing his son preach in the Congregationalist Church. I wanted to hear some real preaching, so he'd go to the Negro Church. Yeah. And it, yeah. it strikes me that at the end, at sort of at the very end of the novel the narrator describes Gilead as sort of being, um, as sort of being a faded hope, um, that it was established as this sort of abolitionist stronghold and, and for a place that would, that could provide safe shelter to folks. Uh, and it's now that, that passion has dimmed. There's a lot of, there's a whole bit about embers and them coming yeah. back to, to life for a little while and then going back. Yeah sort of dormant. And I, I wonder about, I found myself thinking today about, um, about John Lewis and the legacy of folks um, who, who were really ardent during the civil rights movement mm -hmm. and, and about the, the ways that we are all sort of called to carry on those things, but the fire, the fire fades after a little while. And then, uh, new oxygen gets breathed into it and it comes back to life. But um, so this makes sense to me thinking then about the, the, the narrator and his dad as being sort of reflections, but smaller reflections of the grandfather's flame. Yeah. At the last couple pages, I noticed that imagery. Um, Let's see, um, I'm on 246. What have I to leave you? He's addressing his son. But the ruins of old courage, the lore of old gallantry and hope. Well, as I have said, it's all, all an ember now, and the good Lord will surely someday breathe into it flame again. Um, and then... On the next page, toward the top, this whole town does look like whatever hope becomes after it becomes, begins to weary a little, then weary a little more. But hope deferred is still hope. And then he says to his, uh, oh, I think sometimes of going into the ground here as a last wild gesture of love. I too will smolder away from the time until the great 
and general incandescence. And then he says to his son, I will pray you find a way to be useful. I'll pray and then I'll sleep. But I wonder if that, I mean, in light of what I was reading about last night, I wonder if that usefulness is again in, in the use of justice rather than peace. Of course, you can say you don't have peace without justice. And so, those, I think that's those, what comes up here in the novel, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, I, and I think also the father, um, in, in some way, he's kind of a pallid comparison to the grandfather. On the other hand, if the father is a sincere pacifist, that's going to look neutral or negative compared to somebody who is out and, you know, doing midnight raids and, mm -hmm. you know, and, and involved in, in all sorts of violence. And, and so I'm not, I'm not quite, I'm not quite sure what, what to make of that either. And then we talked about, oh, go ahead, Jenny. Well, those, those lines that you were just reading and, you know, where he's, he's really talking about the prairie there at the end. Reminds me of what we talked about in our very first conversation here about, you know, the, um, the land being a character and, and how much the setting comes into play. And I was struck, you know, I, I grew up in South Dakota um, in a place that doesn't look much different really from where I live now. And I've driven around South Dakota and Nebraska enough now to like these descriptions of these small towns are just so accurate, at least in my mind, of, of what these little towns look like. And granted, you know, I grew up in a different time than when this is set, but, um, you know, one, like we talked about with, with Cather and the Prairie, especially being a thing in her novels, this seems to also, just the fact that it comes up here at, at the very end was really, it, it sort of grabbed my attention. Plus, I also am obsessed with the Prairie Sky. Like, I don't want to live by the mountains because I want to see the sky. So I was like, oh, oh, that's what we're talking about here. So, you know, it, um, it jumped out at me a little bit. Yeah, and connected to that sort of imagery, Jenny, there is a, a part where the narrator talks about um, each day is actually the same day. It's not, mm. it's not a new day. The light is always the light. It's us, <laughs> who, it's us who turn through it. Mm -hmm. And, um, which I just thought was a very striking and lovely image and, and related to that sort of prairie openness um, yeah. sort of an idea. And I think also related to the, the sense of, we've talked a lot about generations and that maybe part of it is this idea that each generation is really the same generation. Um, but but the passion changes from generation to generation or, um, or that sort of thing. There's a great line about that. I, I don't have it marked, but I remember it. it said something about how the issues that come up for one generation, the next generation, I can't remember what, how she wrote it or how our narrator said it, but something about almost as if they reject it, but it's really the sort of the same thing playing out 
again, I'll see if I can find it, but that, yeah, that definitely see that generational loop. Yeah. Did anyone else notice the first hard break in the novel? Like the first, like, it stops and you know there are no chapters but there's there's actually yeah. like a whole page and a half of blank <laughs> page and then a new section I'm like wow that's you're 215 pages in before that happened so it was that was a moment in the reading yeah and is it the the first line after the break is 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 jack has a wife and son is that what it is <laughs> yes yeah 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 Yeah, definitely, definitely done on purpose. Um, definitely a big thing. And I don't, I don't know what that is, if that's because, because our narrator doesn't know that at first, you know, he has all this, I don't know, maybe I call it angst and irritation with Jack coming back. And he wants to warn his wife and child. I mean, we see that play out over and over again in the letter that he's writing. I want to tell you, but I don't want to tell you. Ah, I really want to tell you. I really want to warn you, but I'm not going to. And he doesn't even know this part at the time. And I don't know, maybe, maybe this actually makes him feel better towards Jack because he's not so worried now that Jack will try to replace him when he's gone. Well, he already has a wife and child, so he won't try to take mine. I don't know if that's accurate. I think that he definitely, to me, he definitely seems to soften towards Jack right. after that. And I noticed a lot of parallels between the way that Jack describes um, how his relationship with Della developed and how the narrator's relationship with his current wife developed. Like they both, to me, they both describe it as a thing that they just couldn't help but do. Mm -hmm. um, and, and now all of a sudden Jack has this, he, has a son and a wife that he wants to be with um, mm -hmm. but can't and I think the narrator really relates connects to that feeling but then uh, Jack barges in with the comment about but my wife is educated <laughs> you know Jack he, he you know he, he always has to the meanness factor always always st seems seems to be there um, and, you know, and, and I also wonder, and I don't know if, if this is part of, um, what the author is bringing to, to, to the novel or not, but I mean, I have other questions about Jack's behavior. I mean, why he went ahead and got involved with Della when it's no secret that they couldn't stay in St. Louis, you know, those miscegenation laws you know, we're, we're right out there. And of course, as her father reminds him, um, you know, she had, I mean, her life was fine. And then here comes this man who is, is going to compromise her and, and who apparently, you know, doesn't, you know, and I'm, I'm going to, going to sound like a, you know, cranky, Cranky, the cranky person I am, I guess, but you know, why, do, why doesn't he get a job? I mean, for heaven's sake, he's, he's this handsome man. He's 
presentable. He's obviously smart. He's grown up in a family that lavished love on him. This is during, this is after World War II, during the heyday of the middle class, when companies were hiring all sorts of people. Why in the world is he just, just kind of doing shady stuff off at the edges? And if this woman means so much to him, again, get a job and save some money and go somewhere where you can get married. It's, it's, it's not like he's wearing a ball and chain and left in St. Louis. You know, I, as I said, I've got a, I've got a, I've got a problem here with, uh, with Jack. He's not my favorite. <laughs> well, Jack does have a job, though. Um, he gets a pretty good job, and he can afford a place where they can all live together. And then they get careless and are seen together in a park, and he gets fired. That's right. Yeah, but you know he could go so, so so go somewhere else and 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 get a job. I just I really. Well, I, I think, think I maybe not. Oh, I think that's what he's trying to do in Gilead, but you know, I, I was going to say I've already lost her. Yeah, well, I yeah, and you know, if he has changed like that, and and if he is trying to. To, to do that and, and do the right thing in Gilead, then, then, then that's great. Then he's, then he has changed and, and, and he has, he is doing better. Yeah. I, I wonder if there isn't some part of Jack and I'm reflecting back now to his conversation about predestination. If there isn't some part of Jack that just feels that this is, this is just his lot in life. Mm -hmm. um, to be a to be a perpetual source of shame for people around him, uh, and 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 it, and part of his conflict is between accepting that or not accepting it. Yeah, we don't know where that started. Go ahead, Jenny. Oh, I, I had a question. Did you have something else to add to the other? No, no go ahead. Um, I had a question about names and Constance. I know that was something you were looking at in the reading. Um, we do finally learn Mrs. Ames's name that that is given. Um, if his son's name was given, I missed it. So I need some enlightenment there if anyone else saw that. But I'm looking at page 228. And this is when um, Jack is telling his story with Della and um, about his child. And, oh, this is a conversation with Della's father, okay? And he says, um, he knew my, my full name because um, Jack claims to be part of the Ames family. Like, he's trying to sort of, like, build up his reputation based on that family's name and their connection to John Brown. At least that was my understanding of that. Mm -hmm. um, but he says, he knew my full name because that is what Della wanted to call the baby. I was so relieved when I heard that. But then down at the bottom of that same page, it says, my son's name is Robert Boughton, Boston, whatever, Miles. And I'm very confused. Who, what, whose son is named that? And his name is John Ames something Boston, right? Right. So what, I, I don't know, I'm lost. I'm lost as to whose child is named what and what these well, sons' names are. Yeah, Jack's son is 
Robert Boughton Miles. So he named okay. the child after his, or they named the child after his father. Um, okay, thank you. Now I get it. Now I see how I misread that because I was yep. thinking she wanted to like to continue the John Ames name. That she is did. the line. What she she did. I mean, that was what she was proposing. But, but then they, they, yeah, they wanted to name the baby John Ames. Okay. Okay. Um, but then but they, they with... changed their mind somehow for some reason. <laughs> for whatever reason, I got very hung up on that page reading and then went, I don't understand what is happening here. And I was really looking for the name of the son the whole time. I just thought that we would get that. Well, and, and I mean, and I really look for it too, and I don't think it's there. No, it's and I think. And I think that, you know, something is going on with that. It would be so mm -hmm. easy. Um, and so I think that's something I'm going to think hard about between now and next week. Not that I'll necessarily come up with anything, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know too much because I read that short story and um, mm -hmm. read some criticism and so forth. So I do know what the narrator's son is named, but. Okay. Except, except that. Why? Except. <laughs> except the effect of not having it included in the novel is, is what is what kind of interests me. Right. And so, you know, I need to meditate. And, and, and by the way, my issue of the New Yorker that has that story in it finally got here. It didn't until like t two days ago. And I'm waiting to read it because I want to base what I'm hmm. just kind of to, right. to to keep my focus. Right. I've wanted so, to sort of dive ahead into the other three novels, but I figure so, I must wait. So, Anne, <laughs> yeah. do you have any preliminary thoughts or theories on what the significance of, of leaving the, the child unnamed might be? I really don't. I mean, I, I'm, I'm like completely flummoxed. I mean, in in one way, and, and this really is, isn't saying much, it, it's another part of that, you know, one generation onto the next pattern. But yeah. that well, really doesn't, that I wonder doesn't say too much. If, it, if, if he feels like it, the pattern was interrupted because his friend named his own baby after him. Right. So how can he carry on? How can he do it too? He's like, that was taken from me without any warning. You know, he talks about that. I think that's in the last section of the book about what it was like to be in that moment of, are you serious? This is happening. Um, yeah. And so maybe he feels, I mean, again, I have no idea what the name is. Um, maybe he feels like he can't, you know, but, but I mean, whatever name he decided on, why, isn't it anywhere in the novel? Yeah. I mean, why doesn't it say, and, and, and Bobby, as I write this, I'm thinking blah, blah, blah. You know, just, just, yeah. just, just that one word of direct address, but she doesn't do it. So I, and, so I just find that really interesting. And especially given how important names are in the novel. Did you notice how we learn the wife's name? Who, who says her name? I don't remember. Yeah, it was it was Jack. 
who says yes. the name. Uh, yes. I have to go answer the door. I'm the only one in the office right now. So excuse oh. me for a moment, but keep, keep talking. We'll keep talking. <laughs> yeah, but Damon's right. It was Jack. Um, he may, and her name is Lila, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, but he, in conversation, like, I think it's when the narrator is maybe asleep and over, like, listening to them, and, and Jack names her in conversation, and I was so surprised. Well, maybe not, maybe not, because he doesn't bother, not, I don't know if father's the right word, but he doesn't name his son in the letter, and so I guess it's in character in that sense that he also doesn't name his wife directly, but the fact that it's Jack who does it, I just thought that was interesting, too. That's interesting, yeah, but again, that the author doesn't structure the novel so that the son's name is, is revealed, I, I just still think that's, that's a puzzle. Mm-hmm. Is it perhaps because she realizes she's going to write a sequel? I was going to say, we've got a franchise going here. This. <laughs> I don't, um, so, sorry to step away for a moment. Um, the, so I, we get in the, we get in the Bible, we sometimes get unnamed characters. Uh, there's one in the, I think maybe we talked about this before in the road to Emmaus. We get a disciple who's named and the other disciple, and they're traveling someplace. And I seem to recall in the way that those stories were developed, they were developed as oral tradition. And so they were stories that you told folks when you were at worship together or around the table or prayer meeting, whatever the case might be. And, and in some ways, the way that Sometimes the way that having an unnamed character can work is that then it's, it's sometimes easier for the audience to imagine themselves in that role or to imagine someone that they know well in that that unnamed disciple. It could have been could have been Joe, could have been Tom, could have been Joe's cousin, it could have been anybody. Um, and so I wonder if maybe that plays a role in this or not in that sort of sense of, I, I don't know, that, that's just another insight and maybe a tangent. But I think there's a theme of uh, usurping of things that you might catch as you go on in the series. I'm sorry, there's a sense of what of names? Usurping. Usurping, it's what I thought you said. Yeah. Um, because the narrator um, gets his name taken away before he can give it to his own child. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And to somebody he doesn't respect very much. Um, Do you think that part of the narrator's objection to his name being given away? is that now all of a sudden he has this obligation. He feels some sort of obligation that he didn't, that he wouldn't really have felt or had otherwise. Maybe, maybe, because it's supposed to be, I mean, it's, it's supposed to be an honor to him. You know, yeah. Surprising him during the christening. Um, and we get to the very end and he, t and he says like, that he talks about Jack was his son. Right. He says. And he offers him a blessing, too. Yeah. And I think he feels as though he didn't do a great job raising right. him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so one thing, so Jenny, you were on, on page 228, one thing that I wanted to point out because I enjoyed it very much. Okay. So he's, this is Jack. He is um, with Della's family. Della has just given birth. Um, Della is a person of color. All of her family are people of color. Jack is white. He's the only white person there. Um, and they're suspect that, you know, they're, they're not big fans of, of Jack. It's doesn't, that's his perception at least. When Gee, he, imagine that, excuse me. <laughs> right. When he arrives there, um, her dad isn't home, so they let him stay, they let him hang out at the house. Um, and he's, he's in with Della uh, and she's resting and they're talking every once in a while. Uh, he said, he writes, she, well, this is how it reads. The women would take the baby away if he cried. They brought in some supper. I thought maybe things were improving, but they were all just being Christian. Um, which I thought was very, <laughs> I, I really liked that. Um, yeah. And that, and I think sort of, highlights the difference between feigning forgiveness and actually forgiving, which I think is something that the narrator himself wrestles with and struggles with a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when the father asks him to go away, he says, this time I make no appeal to your honor. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. As in you don't have any. And I suppose he had a right to say that. What, how, do you, how do you think the narrator, at, by the end of the novel, how, how do you think the narrator feels about, feels about Jack? I think that scene where, where the narrator gives the blessing is very touching because Jack receives it so humbly. He puts his head on his shoulder, and I can't I find that, but um, so it looks like it maybe starts. Be around 239. That's okay. when he sees him walking up towards the bus stop. Right. And then 241, uh, I think, is kind of where that starts, oh, yeah. right? Uh -huh. Yep. Then the thing I would like actually is to bless you mm -hmm. after, he, after he tries again to give him some money. Right. <laughs> or maybe he tries again after that to give him some. Yeah, and I think I think part of what is, yeah, I think part of, for me part of what was powerful about that scene was that the by this point the narrator has also acknowledged that he feels that he didn't do a very good job the first time that he was given an opportunity to bless Jack. Um, that 
that the surprise of him having his name uh, took him out of that moment and he was thinking about any number of other things, including probably the child that he had lost and the wife that he had lost. And, and now this is a moment when, and in this description, this depiction, he is, he's very much present in that moment with Jack. Well, anyway, at this moment, I told him it was an honor to bless him. And that was an absolute, that was also absolutely true. Um, and then the bus came and he says, we all love you, you know. And he laughs and he says, you're all saints. Um, and then he goes back and even though his friend Botten is unconscious and dying, he tells him that he's, you know, whispers in his ear that he's blessed his son. I think there's an odd bit of resolution, I guess, between the two of them. I mean, I definitely see a shift um, in how the narrator looks at Jack in part to the offering of that blessing. Um, and by <laughs> also it's, it sort of falls in line with what he's been doing the whole life of this, this person, this child is, is sort of um, covering up might be the wrong word to say. Right. But, you know, he never went running to his friend every time his the friend's child did something wrong. You know, it wasn't like he was constantly trying to butt into their relationship, but you know, and so he is still sort of glossing over, maybe that's for the benefit of his friendship. You know, like he, he loves his friend so much that he's, I'm going to do what I can to send your son on in peace so that you can go out in peace. I mean, it's, it's a very tangled, and rightfully so, with the, the names and the families and the, you know, these lives led together. I mean, you're just, you're, you are interconnected. You are very much involved, but then also you all have your own stuff. And so they're not, they're all still individuals too. And, you know, we're, we're getting one perspective, one one very long letter, right? Telling us about his perspective. Right. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I had to check the door again. Um, <laughs> but, and the narrative, the narrative, and maybe you mentioned this, Jenny. Um, so if you did, I apologize. I mean, the narrator mentions that sort of very specifically. It says like, we can never really fully know one another. We can never really yeah. fully know each other's motivations and right. intentions. Right, right. yeah. Um, Damon, did you notice near the end where the narrator, like we were talking last time about how, how do you end something like this? How do you take a letter that you're writing before you die and stop doing it short of just, you know, stopping? Um, and it does say that somewhere it is, oh, I have it written down somewhere, page 238, so very near the end. Um, there's at the bottom of page 238 is that signal to the end where he just says, I think I'll put an end to all this writing. I read it over more or less and I found some things of interest in it, mainly the ways I have been drawn back into this world in the course of it. And so it's, it's the sort of that we, I guess we really don't know at this point what exactly is happening with his health, 
or how he's choosing to spend his time, but he's, he's telling us, well, I'm, I'm done with this, this exercise. And I don't know if that has to do with Jack leaving um, and maybe our narrator looking at his own son and what time they have left together and saying, okay, well, I've told you enough of my story. So now I'm just going to be with you while I can. Although I think we do have a sense in, in toward the end of the novel of how tired the narrator is getting, you know, the smallest exertions sort of wear him out. You know, he's always, you know, I've got, I had to sit down for a while when I got here, when I got there. And so mm -hmm. he would probably have a, have a sense just for physical reasons that he needs, he needs to, to wrap this up. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah. And I, I do think it has something to do with this conflict um, between he and Jack that uh, when they're able to have that conversation at the bus stop uh, that provides him with some sort of closure, I, I suppose, on that. Yeah. And I, th I think that makes sense too. Yeah. Because there, there, there is a shift there. Um, as Jenny said, in after that that last encounter between the narrator and Jack, mm -hmm. I get the sense, um, and that you feel that maybe that shift uh, wasn't really earned. Yeah, I'm I'm struggling. Yeah. Although although after our this conversation, I, I am seeing Jack a little bit more favorably than, than I was before. I no longer think he's completely like Shakespeare's Richard III, was, which was who he was always reminding me of. You know, if you've read Richard III lately, you know, he's the one who's determined to prove a villain. He's going to go out and do all the mean things he can. He's going to um, use women badly and then just slough them off when he's done and and uh, just do whatever he darn well pleases. And <laughs> yeah, uh, Jack definitely has some of those tendencies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But in the final conversation between the narrator and Jack, a couple different times the narrator says, and this is the truest thing I've ever said, and I really did feel that way. And um, like he's seeing things differently. Oh yeah, I think. No, I, I think there there is a shift there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that part of that is is related to. He he finally knows Jack's story. Right? There's so many times leading up to that where his he's been gone for 20 years. I don't know what he's been up to. Mm -hmm. Maybe he's been up to good stuff. Maybe he's been up to bad stuff. Uh, and so many times when he feels that Jack is is hiding something from him or he wishes that he just could tell what was actually going on. And when he, when he finally knows Jack's story, um, then I, which I think is, is true of a lot of our relationships with other folks. Like once we actually know a little bit more about someone's story, then it's, it's, it's easier to relate to them. It's easier to understand their pain or connected um, to some of our pain. There's um, there's a part in here where he talks about um, Bouton 
um, he imagines that if all of Boughton's other kids were home and Jack wasn't there, Boughton would really want to be with Jack. And he describes Jack as a, as a wound that got a lot of attention, as wounds tend to do, or a favored, a favored wound, kind of something like that. I'll find it maybe in a little bit. <laughs> um, but it reminded me, there's a, there's a book, uh, it's called Wounded Healer by Henry Nowen, and it comes up a lot in pastoral care classes and conversations. And, and the core concept is this, um, the more that we are aware of our own pain, uh, the things that have caused us suffering or anxiety, uh, and the more that we can talk about those things, then that helps us to be able to relate to those things, similar things that we see in others, right? Um, and I think that once he finally has this conversation, the narrator and Jack, then he is able to connect their, the pain that they have in some way uh, and see him in a, in a less, I guess, in a more three-dimensional way and in a less two-dimensional way. And possibly that last time that we see him going to Botten's bedside to tell him that he's offered this blessing and it's been received really well. It's sort of like he's trying to heal that wound. You know, maybe that's the balm we've been mm -hmm. looking for. Well, I did not pay as much attention to what happened between our narrator and his own father in the sense of like when you started, you know, retelling that part, I'm like, oh yeah. You know, the fact that he left with the brother who had been estranged for a while, right? And here he is literally carrying on the family pulpit and being left by the family. And and to I I did not think about that in terms of what that would have done to his own psyche and interactions and perceptions of fatherhood and mm -hmm. being a son and, and all of that. But I, I, you know, I definitely think that is um, a component to how and who he is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are lots of prodigal sons, as I've said mm -hmm. before in this novel. There sure are. And, and there are also a lot of um, kind of bearing the burden of having parents. Hmm. I'm going to dig some more into that before, before next week. Um, you know, sort of, sort of what should the father have done to honor the grandfather? Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of a question. I mean, and given that they both have such strong beliefs, but that those beliefs are incompatible, you know, how, how does that work? And, and I also find, find it interesting that the narrator goes through that discussion of the Ten Commandments, and then the next person to enter the scene is Jack, you know, where we kind of can tick off, you know, which commandments. Um, but then, but then the other, the other person that, that we find in the novel who's broken some commandments is the grandfather, particularly stealing. Although, of course, he's stealing because he's going to give all this away. You know, he thinks there are people out there who, who need it more than the people who, 
you know, put the clothes on the line or, you know, that sort of thing. Goes to another church at one point, and when the offering gets back as far as he is, he takes the whole thing and dumps it into his hat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, the, the story comes up that he's, yeah, he's not only stealing from his own family, he's, he's taking, that, that's in Botten's church. That that's well, yeah. in the Presbyterian church right. that, that allegedly happened. And the narrator said, oh, it kind of fits. It, would, it wouldn't surprise me if that happened. Well, and it's so funny. He says, well, but the, but he thought that the Presbyterians had been hoarding. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I wish. Yeah, Greg, where's Greg? He should have been in this conversation. That's right. Yeah. What's going on? Um, um, so I know that we've we've been chatting for for a little while, and I suspect that we could chat for a, a good deal while longer, um, but maybe folks don't want to listen for a good deal while longer, though why wouldn't they? I mean, I <laughs> so, um, but maybe a good place to, to sort of wrap up is um, maybe just uh, something that you are, that you're going to take away, something that you think will maybe stick with you, something you'll keep reflecting on, from maybe just from the novel as a whole? I probably should have warned you that I was going to ask that question earlier. Well, I think, I mean, I was very su surprised. I, like, I guess I, again, second time I've read this, but I forgot that there was another book right after this, um, which that one I have not read, the home one, which is the story of glory or this same sort of story, but told by Glory's perspective, if I'm understanding the blurb correctly. And it just made me think of, I mean, I do think it would be interesting to read that book and to see how things would shift with a different narrator and a different perspective, which kind of takes from what we talked about today and this reminder that we really don't know other people's experiences and stories. I mean, even people we know very well and are dear friends with, we don't always know their I don't know if we can know their inner workings. And I think that's, uh, I think that's an important thing to carry with us as a reminder. Yeah. Others? Well, we've been t tossing around the meaning of the title. And I don't think I, although I put this in my email to you for, um, I did discover that John Brown had founded the League of Gileadites, which was an all-black, the members were all black, but again, they were, um, their, their intention was to prevent slaves recapture. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, that does, again, point to the importance of the John Brown understory. Yeah. You know, and I, I Googled that hymn that Dwight mentioned, you know, there, there is a, a, a bomb in, in, in Gilead. Um, and I don't know that I'd ever heard it before. But one of, one of the things that I hadn't realized about it is, <clears throat> is that it's an African-American spiritual. And so, um, you know, not a hymn that, you know, some professional hymn writer, you know, some, somebody wrote. So I thought, you know, that was really interesting, too, about all the, um, about slavery and, and how, you know, and, and sort of 
how how to how individuals and the country i guess can heal from the continuing wounds of slavery and that's something i'm thinking about a lot in in my life anyway right now and i think that's relevant to to the novel and and that's 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 one of the things i'm going to keep thinking about between now and next week mm-hmm. yeah i think um I think I'm, I'm kind of with you, Anne, or following along that sort of line of thinking of this. I, I'm sort of captivated by this sense of the author talks about, and we read the passage that talking about Gilead as this looks like a place or like this looks like faded hope <laughs> um, uh, or whatever, hope, whatever it is. Someone will remember what the actual line is. Um, and and thinking about uh, thinking about Grandpa as Grandpa to me is very clearly a, he's supposed to be a prophet. He's a prophetic figure. The narrator at the end of it talks about uh, him. He had received Grandpa's mantle, which is uh, Elijah and Elisha, uh, the passing on of the mantle from one prophet to the next, and. Um, Sometimes in the Bible, when that happens, the prophet who takes over is not really quite as good as, as the one who came before. And, and thinking about that sort of, what are, the, what are the hopes that we should be carrying on? Um, what, are the, what are the fires that we, that we do need to breathe? What are the embers that we need to breathe new life into like what what are the prophetic roles um what are the faded hopes the that we that we should be looking um to revive or to restore um and i i guess i'm thinking more from a cultural societal um perspective and from a church perspective i think as well i what i think that we are called to be prophets um and what does that mean uh, in in today's time, and so I think those are some of the questions or the lingering thoughts or images that will that will stick with me from Gilead. So, ah, boy, okay. <laughs> so, um, and and on Thursday, this coming Thursday, the thirtieth. Is that right? Sure. So, oh no. <laughs> Summer. Time, time doesn't have as much meaning. COVID-19, we don't have any. <laughs> as it once did. Um, yes. That is the 30th. Uh, Thursday, July 30th at 6.30. Uh, we'll have another open Zoom meeting, and folks can join in on that. And I would bet you that that would be one of the questions that would maybe be asked or things that could be considered. So if folks have something uh, they can be prepping and thinking about that. Uh, it's not too late to join in. If you, if there are folks out there who are listening or watching and would like to, let the church office know, and we'll get you on the email list and get you connected to that as well. So, um, my my deep, sincere thanks and appreciation to Anne and to Constance and to Jenny um, for joining in and being a part of this. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been a highlight of 
my every other Thursday for the last uh, five <laughs> weeks or six weeks or whatever the case may be. Um, so, and, and hopefully it has been for others as well. I echo that. <laughs> yes, same here. So, um, who knows, maybe we'll do something like this again uh, next summer. Uh, who knows? What the world, the world is a mystery, I suppose. <laughs> Just as the narrator would say, is everyone. So, <laughs> with all that said and done, uh, my thanks again to everyone. Thanks everyone for uh, watching, for listening along, and I guess until next time, toodaloo. Bye. Bye everyone. <laughs>